Well, as Rob mentioned a little earlier, I had the privilege again this year of joining the high school youth group on their mission trip. Did it last year and told you last year I was just incredibly impressed with this group of high school students. Um, just their work ethic, their attitude, and they didn't disappoint this year. Uh, again, I told Rob at one point that I honestly don't think, other than teasing around, those kind of things, that I, honest, I honestly don't think I ever heard a complaint. Not once. And that's pretty tough. I wanted to complain, but since they weren't, I couldn't. Um, and, and I say that was really tough because it was hard work. I mean, from very early in the morning till late at night, it was pretty well nonstop. In a hot, hot, humid week, you were just moving all the time. And again, like Rob said, showering every other day and things like that, you know, there's room for complaint, but they just had remarkably positive attitude, remarkable work ethic through the week. And one of the things that really was encouraging to me was just to see the way that different ones would step up at different times and kind of kind of lead the way when you'd face a challenge, to be the one who would kind of set the tone, a positive tone that would uh, just kind of lead the others into it that way. Happened again and again. I think most would agree that the week in some ways was a, a time of kind of a spiritual high form. I know it was for me. It was a time of really just uh, seeing God's hand upon us as a group and just um, really in a sense, feeling God's presence at work uh, amongst us and with people we were working with. But I, I was a youth pastor for about 15 years. I've done a lot of trips with uh, groups and similar mission trips and other things over the years and seen God do great things in groups. And one thing I learned as a youth pastor was it is hard to maintain that momentum. You know, the momentum that you get of kind of that spiritual high on an event like that. It is difficult to do. It's hard to kind of stay at that place as you kind of re-enter life and go back to old routines and friends and, and things. It's, it's tough. Now, I don't say that because high schoolers are any different than the rest of us. All of us, as we experience some kind of spiritual high, we often very quickly will kind of also experience some sort of spiritual amnesia. And we pretty quickly seem to lose track of some of the things we learned and experienced. Matter of fact, if you read Scripture, you will find that is pretty well the story of Scripture from spiritual high pretty quickly back to spiritual amnesia. I have great hopes for this youth group. That would not be true. But I know that's tough. That's a battle that we all have to fight sometimes. No, I don't say that because I'm demeaning the value of those um, experiences that kind of bring these spiritual highs. Some people will say, you know, it's, it's the camp experience. You're up here and then you come back down and so this was meaningless. No reason to be up there because it doesn't last. And I'd say, I don't actually believe that. I actually believe that those spiritual highs are an important part of our walk with Christ. I think they matter. I think they revitalize sometimes, re reinvigorate, motivate. In some ways, I think they're a little glimpse of the way things one day will be. We get a little taste of it that stirs our hope, allows us to, to kind of get a, just a glimpse. It doesn't last, but a glimpse of what one day will come in abundance. And we need that to kind of keep going, don't we? Those are good things. I think we ought to embrace them, look for them, have all we can. But I'd also say that they're, they're not the only thing we need if we're going to persevere in our journey with Christ, if we're going to sustain this walk with Christ. We need more than just that in our life. The book of Ezra we're going to look at today is a book that tells a story of, I think, a spiritual high, but also tells some story of spiritual amnesia, of them kind of forgetting what they'd experienced pretty quickly. Well over a period of time, but forgetting in some dramatic ways. As you remember, um, we've been 
over the sermons recently been talking about uh, the people of Israel and Judah going into exile, being taken into exile. First it was Israel that was conquered by the Assyrians and, and they were taken into exile by the Assyrians. And then a little later Judah falls to the Babylonian Empire and they are taken away. Jerusalem and the temple are all destroyed and they are taken away into slavery into Babylon. The story of Ezra is about the story of their return back to Jerusalem. So this is kind of the positive side of the story. God graciously allows them to come back, sends a remnant back. In the first six chapters, it tells the story of how, how the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. Cyrus, the king of the Persians, pretty immediately makes a decree that tells them that they will be allowed to go back to Jerusalem and begin this process of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city. And so this first group of exiles, uh, this first wave is sent back to Jerusalem. And the first six chapters kind of tell that story. The first thing they do is they rebuild the altar and they reestablish worship in Jerusalem. And then they start hitting some road bumps and some obstacles and things slow down and they struggle and um, some apathy sets in. But eventually, over a period of about 25 years, they finally rebuild the temple. And chapter 6 ends in a celebration because worship has been restored to Israel. God's people are back in the promised land and they're worshiping the one true God. Things are as it should be. This is a high point. This is a great point. Chapter 7, we get introduced to Ezra for the first time, the namesake of the book, and we meet Ezra. Ezra actually doesn't, he's, he's a guy who brings back the second wave of exiles who come back to Jerusalem. So he's allowed to get this group together and bring them back to continue this work. But Ezra doesn't actually come back with his second group for about 60 years after the completion of the temple. So a good bit of time has gone by. And here's what Ezra walks into when he comes back to Jerusalem eventually. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Pretty well every neighbor, they have started adopting their ways. For they have taken some of their daughters to be their wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So even their leaders have been leading them right back down the path that got them into trouble in the first place. Because, you see, the problem with their intermarrying was they, they intermarried and as they intermarried, they began adopting the ways of those foreign people and adopting the gods of those foreign people. And idolatry returns to the land again. This, this destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, thousands die, this horrible slavery they're taken into. All of this, was, we're told, was done because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion against God. It really was God's gracious way, believe it or not. God's gracious way of stopping this path of destruction that they were on, stopping them from continuing down a path that led to death. And he turns them around and he brings them back and he graciously returns them to the land. 60 years later, 85 years later, 95 years later, whatever, they're heading right back down the same path again. That's what Ezra walks into. Prophet Malachi, probably writing during the same time period, described the people of that time as apathetic about worship, miserly in their giving, quick to grumble, and very quick to compromise. Um, things, again, have pretty quickly slid right back where they were. Apathy and amnesia seems to be setting in. But one of the things I love about this story 
that I love about many of the stories in Scripture. Instead of God sitting back and crossing his arms and watching his people just walk down a path to destruction, God steps in and he intervenes. And he, and he fights to win back the hearts of his people. Sometimes he does it by putting obstacles in the path. Sometimes very hard, harsh obstacles in the path to get them to stop walking that direction. Sometimes he graciously does it as he did in the book of Ezra where he sends a man or a woman to them to be the person who calls them back, who invites them to turn around and go back on the right path in the right way. Ezra seems that he was the man for that moment, the man God chose to step into the life of Israel in that moment and call them back to right ways. So why Ezra? Well, we know from later writings that um, Ezra came to be known as the second Moses. So he's actually not talked about much in Scripture, but Jewish people really came to see him as a significant figure in their history, a person who, again, stepped in at the right time and saved them from destruction because of his ministry to them, because of the way he led them. Uh, we know that he was a priest and a scribe. Prior to the exile, those are separate offices. Now they've come together in Ezra, and we'll see that continue. So he was, he was a priest. He led them in worship. He made the sacrifice on their behalf. But he was also a scribe. He was the one who studied the Word of God. He, he copied it and preserved it. And he also taught it. And we know that he did his job well because the passage we just heard read, it says he was well-versed in the Scripture, the Scriptures of that time, the Law of God, the first five books of our Bible. He knew them well. He was well-versed in them. Matter of fact, if you look in chapter, 10, verse, chapter 7, verse 10, it says this, For Ezra had set his heart to study the Law of God and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I love the order he put things in. He set his heart to study the word of God. He was passionate about knowing and studying God's word. But this wasn't just an ac academic exercise for Ezra. Because then it says, and he also did it. He applied it to his own life. He lived out the things he learned. And then he taught it to others. As someone who teaches the word of God, I know that I'm tempted often to kind of skip that middle step. To study and then to teach. Ezra studied, applied it to his own life, and then he taught others with both his words and his life. One commentator wrote this, With study, conduct, and teaching put deliberately in this right order, each of these was able to function properly at its best. Study was saved from unreality, conduct from uncertainty, and teaching from insincerity and shallowness. And we know from Nehemiah 8 that, that Ezra was a very effective teacher. Nehemiah 8 tells us that Ezra read the word of God to the people and taught the word of God to the people. And, and we know that that was central to this spiritual renewal that happened in Jerusalem. His teaching was very important. And I think it was important and effective because he applied it. He lived it. Didn't just teach it. In fact, one passage I love um, talking about Ezra is in chapter 8. Turn there if you will, and we're going to look at a couple passages. So turn to Ezra chapter 8 if you have your Bibles. And this is where he's just about to leave. He's just about to leave Babylon for this long, hard journey back to Jerusalem. Now, the, the route he probably took was probably about a 900-mile route. Very difficult, very dangerous journey with this group of people to get back to Jerusalem. And, and he needs protection. It's a dangerous route. Now, God has been using the kings of Persia to provide for this, for his people being, for God's people being sent back to Jerusalem. He's provided in many ways through them. 
And, and it's acknowledged many times that God was the one using them to provide. But in this case, Ezra says, beginning in verse 22, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, The hand of our God is good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So Ezra, again, I think it would have been consistent with trusting God to say, I'm going to go to the king and ask for protection on this long journey. God often provided through those kings. But in this case, he knows I've been, I've been telling this king about our God, this king of, who is for his people and blesses his people and protects his people and protects them against their enemies. And so Ezra says, I, I don't want to ask him for protection because how will he perceive that? How will he see it? We see it, oh, you got such a great, strong God, and you need me, right? You need me to protect you along the way. So Ezra does what we see Ezra do many times. Ezra steps in, and instead of taking that obvious route for protection, we're told in verse 23, so he fasted, so we fasted, and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. He turns to God and he prays. And that is, that is Ezra throughout this story. He's a man who not only knew the word of God and applied it to his life and taught it to others, he was also a man who bathed everything he did in prayer. He was quick to turn to God and ask for God's help and knew that even if this route wasn't the right route, God would provide another way. He expected God to provide. Matter of fact, one of the things you see in Ezra is he looked around at his world through this lens of faith. When, when good things happened, when they succeeded at anything, when blessing came, he constantly attributed that to God. He looked around and he said, that, that's a God thing happening over there. God's the one who made that happen. Chapter 7 and verse 6, and verse 9 and verse 28, then chapter 8 and verses 18, 22, and 31. All those cases you will find various versions of this statement. The hand of our God was on us. Ezra again and again looked around him and whenever something good was happening, he was quick to acknowledge that's God. God's doing something over here for me and for us. He looked through the lens of faith. Uh, one of the stories I've told students who are on the um, mission trip with us, it was one of my favorite moments in the trip, uh, was where we had, after a long day, um, dropped them off, and they were going into a restaurant to eat, and I went look for a place to park the van, uh, the church van. And as I went to park, the van died. It just completely died on me, and I kind of coasted over into a parking space. And so this is getting pretty late at night, and... Uh, Finally found someone to jump the van and get it going and decided, you know, after driving around a little and playing with it, decided it was probably the alternator had gone out on it. And so I just didn't turn on anything electrical I could, called the other leaders and told them I was going to go try and find a parts store someplace and figure out a way to get this thing fixed because we needed that van the next day. It's going to be a hard trip without all our vans. So, um, so they figured out a way to get the students all back to the church that night without the van and and I went out looking for an auto parts store. Well, it turned out the, the store I actually found was in the part of town where we'd been working most of the week, which was definitely the poorest, roughest part of town. And so I got there, and matter of fact, when I finally pulled in, I just thought, just to make sure it's the alternator, I just pulled on the headlights real quick, and as soon as I pulled them on, died. And it was dead again, wouldn't start. So I went into the auto zone that I was at and asked him if he had the alternator, and I wasn't even sure I was going to put it on because I didn't have enough tools with me to do it. And uh, he said, well, I don't have one, but there's one at another store half hour away. So the only one he could find. And it's getting, again, late at night. And so I said, well, do you know anyone 
you know, figure you're selling parts. Do you know anybody in this area, backyard mechanic or somebody that might work on this van tonight for me and get it repaired for me? He said, you know, a guy just walked out buying parts that might be your guy. And he got out and ran with me out into the parking lot, and we caught this guy as he was just about to drive out of the parking lot, stopped him, get talking to him, and asked him if he'd help me fix the van. He told me, well, he was actually, his biggest concern was that he knew the parts store was closing and we were going to be in the dark in the parking lot pretty soon. And even though he lived in the neighborhood, no way he wanted to be working on that van in that neighborhood in the dark. And he just kept telling, I'm not so sure about doing that. And so finally talked him into it, and he agreed to do it if I would help him fix it, and we'd do it together. Um, and so then we took this alternator out of this van, and he drove me half an hour to get the part, drove me half an hour back. We were under that van in the dark with a little pen light. That's all we had, a little pen light trading off shining while we put this alternator in this uh, van. Got it running. It was great. And at the end of it, I went to pay him the money that I agreed to pay him at the beginning. And he said to me, you know, I, I just feel funny taking the money. Because, he, because our conversation for the whole couple of hours we were together was about the fact that he was a person who had just kind of had knew Christ and had walked far away from Christ and been living a life very contrary to his faith. And our conversation for the couple of hours was about that, about walking with Christ. And he said, I just feel like God sent you here tonight for me. And so I feel funny taking the money. And I said, well, that's cool because I'm pretty sure God sent you here tonight for me. <laughs> um, so you are taking the money. And, uh, and he was then willing to take the money. But it really was one of those moments you would say, the hand of God was upon us. It was clearly one of those moments for me. A lot of people would say, you know, you're just looking at the random events of life and you're just imposing God upon it. You're just trying to stick God into that story. The author of Hebrews wrote, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I think when we work, look at our world through the eyes of faith, we are looking for God's presence and his activity. We're expecting him to show up, and we expect him to show up as a good God who wants to reward his people. It's what we expect. And I say, yes, I look at my world through that lens of faith. I absolutely do. When I say to them, I can absolutely prove that was God, I say, no. The scripture also say, says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But I would also say to him, my, my faith is not without evidence. As I look around at the world around me, I think I see all kinds of evidence of God's presence and of God's goodness. As I look in his word and the story of how he's worked in the lives of people, I again see evidence of God's presence and his goodness. When I look at my own story and my own life, when I look even at things like my own conscience and my own longings, I see evidence of my God. When I, when I look even at the way the voice of his spirit speaks to my spirit, I see evidence of my God. When I listen to the stories of God's people, I hear evidence of my God. And I would say yes, in the face of that evidence, I look at my world through the eyes of faith. And I absolutely look for my God to show up. I think Ezra was someone who he looked for God to show up. He expected to see God. He expected to find his goodness when he looked around. And when he saw goodness, he saw God in it. And he was quick to acknowledge it. Ezra was a man of God's word. He was a man of prayer. 
was a man who looked at his world through the lens of faith. And I think that's one of the reasons God chose him to be this man for this moment, because that's the man he was. And so Ezra makes that long 900-mile journey back to Jerusalem. He's faced with this situation. The question is then, how does he respond? And there we learn something else about Ezra the leader. Because when Ezra walks into that difficult situation, people again turning away from God after such a short time. And, and again, you say 60 years, that's not a short time. But think of what they have experienced. Think of what they've gone through because of their idolatry and their sin. What they as a people have experienced. 60 years is a short time to forget that. And already they've gone back to old paths and old ways. And in the face of that, what I love is how Ezra responds to that when he sees it. We're told that in a public place, Ezra tears his clothes and he begins pulling out his hair and he sits silently in that public place. All three of those were traditional ways in that time when you grie- how you grieve a death. So what he did was before the people, he sat and he grieved over their sin. He let them see his sorrow over the direction they were going. And then he prayed a prayer. If you have your Bibles again, turn to chapter 9. I'm not going to read this whole prayer to you, but I want to read the first couple of verses for you. In verse 6 it says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our iniquities. Oh, you are. Ezra wasn't intermarrying, wasn't worshiping false gods. What I love is Ezra, Ezra entered into his people. These were his people. He even took their sins upon himself. And he prayed as one of them from the inside. He didn't stand there and wag a finger and judge them and tell them, here's what you're doing wrong, even though they deserved it. Instead, he entered in as one of them, as a part of them from within, I think he set a model for them of how he hoped for and wished they would also respond to their sin, that they would grieve over it, and they would turn before their God and confess their sin. So says, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. He goes on and he prays. And he talks about the fact we have suffered dearly because of our sin. You know God has commanded you not to intermarry with these foreign people, to stay pure, to continue to worship him. You know his commands. And despite our sin, God has graciously allowed us to return to Jerusalem. He has restored a remnant of his people back to the promised land. And then in his prayer, he says, And God, how offended you must be that even then we would again turn away from you. And he lays all that before the feet of God in his mercy. And again, I think what Ezra is doing is saying, People, follow me. Follow me in this way. One of the things I loved on our mission trip, and one of the things, again, was just really encouraging to me personally, was watching how um, various students at various times would step up in the group Whenever facing a challenge, when hard things would happen, I didn't see anybody preach a sermon to anybody. Maybe it happened, I didn't hear it. I didn't uh, catch someone saying, you should. Didn't hear any shoulds. But I love that there are various ones in the group. And it was various ones, time and time again. wasn't the same person. When a hard thing would happen, they just kind of set a tone. There was kind of an attitude. And someone would kind of respond in a way that was a right way that positive way, that let's take the challenge on and face it in the way that we as Christians should face it. 
And everyone else kind of knew that's the right way to go, and we follow. You know, sometimes I was following them because I wanted to go another way and knew it was kind of the right way. One of the times that Rob mentioned was the, the night that was our free night after a long, hard, very hot day. And again, only got to shower every other day. So this was our shower day. And if we didn't get back in time before lights out, we didn't get that shower. And I got to tell you, that's an important shower when you only get it every other day and you only got so much time to get it. And things had just gone wrong getting back from where we were and subway problems and all these things. And subway even kind of broke down track for a while. And again, when they were all singing worship songs on the train during that time, I was kind of snoozing, but they were all singing. Um, and again, we get back to one of the subway stations waiting for a transfer. And Rob comes up to me and says, what are we going to do tonight about showers? Because we're clearly going to miss lights out. We're going to be in late. And I said... There's no way we can do showers, Rob. There's no way. Because I've been ticked at everybody else getting in late and doing stuff. We just can't do that, you know. And then I thought, how thankful I am that Rob's the youth pastor and he has to go tell everybody. (laughs) (laughs) But what I loved is when he told everybody, I mean, I honestly thought, because I was ready to rebel, I honestly thought, this is not going to be a good moment. And instantly some responded in the right way and everybody just followed suit. It was hardly a blip, and we just went on. It was a great night. Um, it's a great model how the church of God ought to work, isn't it? That, that from within, we encourage one another to best ways. When faced with challenges, we don't always have to preach at each other. We just step up and lead. We go the way we know we ought to go. And it's the best way to help people follow. Ezra chapter 10 and verse 1, here's how the people responded to Ezra's example. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. They joined him in his sorrow, and they repented of their sin, and they went back to right directions. I think Ezra was the right man for that moment. He was the right man not just because, of he, because he was willing to step into that moment. He was the right man because... He was prepared for that moment. He was a man who studied, lived, and taught the Word of God. He was a man of prayer and fasting. He was a man who saw and acknowledged God's hand in his life and in the world around him. He was a man who saw the value of the community he was in, and it was his. He was in it. It mattered because it was his. All those things prepared him to be the right man for that right moment. All of us, I think, are called to be the people for various moments. Just like in the youth group, different ones for different moments. And that's what we should be as, a, as the people of God. We ought to be people who are always preparing ourselves, preparing as Ezra prepared, to be those people who are ready to step into those moments when, when the course could go this way or this way. And we step into those moments and go the right way, and others follow and go with us. One of the things I love about this story is there are a lot of things I want to be in life I'm never going to be. Every time I watch the Olympics, I think, I'd love to be an Olympic athlete. I want to be one of those people, you know? It is not going to happen. Uh, It wasn't going to happen when I was younger. It's sure not going to happen now. But when I I look at the life of Ezra, one of the things that stands out to me is everything Ezra did is not beyond any of us. It's not. We all have the opportunity to be people who 
who passionately study the Word of God, apply it to our lives, and teach what we learn to others. We all have the opportunity to be people of prayer and fasting. We all have the opportunity to be people who embrace the community of God, who live in it as ours and are in it, truly in it. And we all have the opportunity to be people who look around our world through the eyes of faith, through that lens of faith, and look for God to show up, searching for Him. Where is He at and how is He working? And if we do those things, we prepare to be the people for those moments little moments and big moments that help God's people stay on course. Every one of us is needed for that. As a youth pastor, I've seen many times where one student in my youth group keeps the group on course, keeps them moving in right directions. As a pastor, I've seen many times where one person in a church in that moment keeps us from going down a dangerous course and helps us move in right directions. All of us have the opportunity to do that. But it's not just how you handle the moment. It's how you prepare for those moments. We need all of that if we're going to keep on this path and sustain it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you don't give up on us, that you do fight for the hearts of your people. I thank you that you are a persistent God who pursues hard after us. I pray, Father, we'd be quicker to hear your voice, quicker to respond to the obstacles you put before us, quicker to turn and listen to the people that are calling us back to right paths. Father, we know that all this is possible because we serve such a good God. In your blessed name, amen.